All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Welcome, thanks so much for coming back. Um, we're gonna dive right in um, so that we don't start too late. Got some ground to cover. Um, let me pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll get started. God, thanks so much for your word and thank you for uh, your mandate to love one another uh, selflessly. Uh, Jesus, you said that uh, all men would know that, you are, that we are your disciples if we love one another, and, and you meant not in a, uh, simply a way that we say we love one another, but uh, that is uh, meant through sacrifice and through uh, giving selflessly. Uh, and uh, as we're going to see today, Lord, that, that uh, is how your gospel was spread uh, early on, and uh, it had a powerful impact on a pagan world that knew nothing of you. Um, and so, God, I pray that we would have that same impact by the way we love one another, by the way we love uh, this world selflessly and sacrificially the way you did, uh, that we would transform Norman and uh, the ripples going out from that uh, would change the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we're going to talk about today, this is the, the fifth and final week of this, uh, this segment of our uh, historical theology class that we've been, we've been going through, and we'll take a break uh, that I'll talk about, and I'll, I'll fill in the gaps what we're going to be doing uh, in the in-between times. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about today is, is ministries of sacrifice in the early church. Uh, before we get going and talking about some historical details, um, I want to talk about, I was, I was doing a little bit of uh, homework, and uh, I, was, I was interested in this question uh, who are we, who are New Testament Christians commanded to honor? Uh, several times in the New Testament, Paul or Jesus uh, or an epistle writer will command us, give honor to this person or these people. And there are two ways, two words that uh, the writers use to express that. One they, one they use all the time uh, and the, one, the other one they use uh, only once. Uh, the first one, is uh, this word timao. Uh, the, the noun, the Greek noun for honor is time, and timao means to show honor. But in this definition, it really means a, a showing proper respect or appreciation for it. And so we are commanded several times throughout Scripture to, to uh, honor like this, showing proper respect. Do respect for everyone and one another. So uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Honor everyone. says, honor everyone. Uh, and Paul says uh, to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. In Romans chapter 13, or in Romans 12, excuse me. We're also so, supposed to show honor to, ma'o, to those whom God has placed in authority. So that includes secular uh, authorities and it includes Christian authorities. So, for example, the first two I have there are emperor. Uh, we're commanded twice to show honor to the emperor. We're also commanded to show honor to earthly masters. That is, uh, servants, bond servants are commanded to show honor to their earthly masters. But they're also, we're also commanded to show, uh, to honor our father and mother. That one is repeated throughout the New Testament, quoting uh, the Old Testament, for, of course, the Ten Commandments. And so we are commanded to honor our father and mother. Uh, we're also uh, commanded to honor ruling elders. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that ruling elders should receive double honor, especially those whose job is preaching and teaching. And that's not uh, celebrity kind of honor. That's not like worship status. That is showing due respect. Because right after that verse, 
Paul says, because the worker deserves his wages. He, qu he quotes a passage and said, don't muzzle the oxen while it's treading out the grain. What he's saying is, show due respect to those whose job it is to preach and to teach and, and, to, and to rule, the authorities that God has placed over you. And we're also supposed to show honor, this word tomao, to those who are in a vulnerable state. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says to honor those widows who are legitimate widows. In other words, those who are without uh, opportunity to remarry, those who are a little bit older and they're not likely to have a husband this time, they're not likely to have a husband who's going to be able to provide for them. And so we as a church should show them honor, show them due respect by giving care to them, by showing them. Uh, also in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Peter says, or first, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that husbands are to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. Peter's words. So he, he says, honor your wives as the weaker vessel, right? Whatever that means, that it, I mean, physical uh, ability or opportunity to earn a living, uh, to do those kinds of things at, at that point in time, he says, honor your wives in that way. So that is the, the, by far the most common way we are commanded to show honor, this verb tamao. But there is one instance uh, in which we are commanded to show honor to a human being. One instance where we are using the, uh, the verb, or the, the, the noun form, intimos. So time, remember, is the noun that means honor, intimos. That addition of a, of a little prefix onto that is an intensifier. And so what it means is to, is to revere, uh, to celebrate, uh, not just in a show due respect, but like this is the kind of person that we celebrate collectively together, not just in a, a respect or a serve kind of way, but in a way that we celebrate almost like celebrity status. And that happens only once, and it is in reference to those who risk their lives in service to others. We revere them. Uh, and we find that in the life of this guy named Epaphroditus. It's, Paul uses it to describe Epaphroditus in, in Philippians chapter 2. So uh, I want to turn there. Can you guys, if you guys have a Bible handy, would you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30? And could someone, in a good loud voice, when you get there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. Remember, Paul, we're going through Philippians as a church. Paul is in prison, uh, and he is about to be served and helped by the Philippians, uh, and who send this guy, Epaphroditus, to, to, to help him. And so uh, somebody in a good loud voice, read Philippians chapter 2, 25 through 30.
Okay. So Epaphroditus is sent and he gets sick. Uh, he's, a, he's a messenger, he's, he's no more than an errand boy uh, who is sent by the Philippians uh, to minister to Paul in his time of need while he is in prison and he gets sick and he almost died. Uh, and, and Paul uh, says that we, he's going to send him back because Epaphroditus has heard they were concerned and uh, that you should welcome him and honor men like him. So uh, I've got four observations about this situation and I, I love this. This is one of my favorite passages. Uh, in all of scripture, it's meant a lot to me over the last year, and I'll explain, or the last two years, and I'll explain why. But a couple of observations. Uh, I love the fact that Paul calls Aaron boys uh, fellow soldiers and fellow workers, like the Apostle Paul. Uh, this person, Epaphroditus, who is no more than somebody who is, who is uh, carrying food, uh, maybe information, maybe a blanket, uh, maybe a book, uh, to Paul, uh, is, is seen as a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. Right? Like, I, I love that Paul is not, he doesn't stratify uh, who, who is supposed to uh, be given due respect to this label, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier of the Apostle Paul. Like, would we all be so lucky uh, to be called fellow worker and fellow soldiers along with Paul? And, and here it is, this just this person who is uh, serving him as he is trying to preach and proclaim the gospel. And so uh, there is obviously no less honor bestowed on those whose job it is to sweep and hold doors and work as servants uh, for all of us to serve the body of Christ, right? They are also fellow workers, fellow soldiers. But we also see godly people die of diseases, right? Like, uh, I, I, want you to, I want you to think about that, okay? So uh, Epaphroditus uh, is doing everything right. There is no indication that he's done anything wrong, that there is any disobedience in his life, uh, that he has merited some kind of disapproval from God that he should be sick and that he should die. He is living this life. Paul has just called him a fellow worker and a fellow soldier, right, who is ministering to Paul in his time of need. And he gets so sick that he almost dies. And Paul doesn't talk about this with surprise. Uh, he doesn't talk about like, whoa, that's so shocking. I can't believe this is rocking me. Godly people die. Paul knows. This is, he's talking about, I mean, he's living in a world before antibiotics uh, and before, um, before uh, anesthesia. Uh, and in a world with like 40% infant mortality rate. Like he, he is living in a world where godly people and people who are a part of godly families suffer loss all the time. Uh, and that, in, that includes godly people. So I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that when we start talking about how Christians, early Christians serve uh, those who are sick and in need. Uh, early Christians understood godly people die. Uh, and this has meant, actually meant a lot to me over the last couple of years of my life. Uh, was contracting cancer. And I would have well many people uh, come up and, 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 and promise me uh, something to the effect of, you know, God works in the life of his faithful and human female uh, joy. Uh, and I, I thought about this passage and I, and I, I thought, you know, that to some extent I, I, I want to believe that. I believe God is faithful. I believe God is strong to save. And I believe that God in his power can heal whoever he wants to heal. And yet you cannot promise me that God does not take godly people sometimes, right? Like that, that God takes godly people when he wants to. He, he, he could have taken Epaphroditus if he wanted to, uh, and yet he decides not to. And so we need to, Christians, need to uh, not promise one another silly things when it, when it comes to uh, the death of God's faithful, right? Like that, that, that can happen for any one of us at any time that God decides that he has uh, completed our work here. Uh, and so early Christians recognize that we should as well also God's healing of diseased people uh, is a, not only a mercy to them, but also a mercy to those who love them. Um, 
this was my, my prayer the last uh, year, uh, or the last two years when Jill was sick. Uh, I looked at Epaphroditus' life, and I looked at what Paul said. And uh, Paul says, uh, God had mercy on Epaphroditus and healing him, but not only on Epaphroditus, it was also on Paul to spare him sorrow upon sorrow. Like, knowing that God could take Jill's life if he wanted to, uh, knowing that God may decide not to heal. It may not be the good kind of cancer that responds to uh, uh, certain kinds of immunotherapies or chemotherapies, right? It may be an aggressive form of cancer that, that, that takes Jill. Uh, knowing that that could happen, my prayer was not, God, I'm going to trust in faith that you're going to heal her. Uh, my prayer was, God, would you have mercy on Jill? And not only on Jill, but also on me, also on her kids, to spare us sorrow upon sorrow. That was my, that was my claim, right? Like, uh, if you would have mercy on Paul to spare him sorrow upon sorrow uh, to, in losing Epaphroditus, his friend, uh, would you spare me sorrow upon sorrow in taking my wife now? Um, and he could decide, and it's mercy, right? Like I, I don't know how to say it, it's mercy. It's not deserved, it's not guaranteed. Uh, if he decides to spare Jill's life, it is mercy to uh, Epaphroditus, or to, to, in this case, Epaphroditus and to Paul, and it would mercy uh, to Jill and mercy to me as well. The last thing I wanna point out, and this is the thing that it ends with, we are to revere. Uh, he uses that, this is, the, this is the only time he uses that word to talk about a, a human being, in Timos. Uh, the only time he uses that word to not talk about God himself is we are to to such people. Well, it's people who risk their lives in service for the gospel. And not just like explicitly service for the gospel. Epaphroditus is not preaching the gospel. He is just... Uh, giving his life sacrificially in service. And he uses this word, uh, parabaluomai. All right, uh, parabaluomai. It literally means to like cast alongside or to disregard. Uh, literally, in, in this way, it means to gamble, to take a risk. And so Epaphroditus gambled his life. Uh, he risked his life. And the Apostle Paul says, we are to celebrate. We are to honor those people. This is something that characterized the early church like service to one another in a way that was so sacrificial uh, that it was celebrated as, as the epitome of what Christians should be uh, doing and living as. I'm going to give you some examples. Obviously, Jesus, we see this, uh, his claim that uh, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But we also see this in the Apostle Paul's life in ways that we don't often recognize. Uh, can somebody quickly turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And then we'll look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Who's got Galatians 2, 9 and 10? Okay, so um, Paul is, in, in Galatians, he's defending his gospel and he's defending his authority as an apostle. Uh, and he is uh, trying to make a case early on that uh, the early apostles, James, Peter, and John, those who were pillars, did not influence me in my preaching. I already knew the gospel. The gospel that I'm preaching is the one that God revealed to me in Christ. Uh, and so when I went to Jerusalem and I met with James, Peter, and John, uh, they agreed, you guys go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews. And, he's, and they, they say this curious thing. The only thing they asked 
is that we should continue to remember the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. Well, who are the poor? Well, it, they're not talking about poor in some kind of abstract sense. Like, hey, poor people are important. You should remember the poor. Like, think about, think about poor people. Uh, is he talking about, are they talking about poor unbelievers? Probably not. Not in this context and not based on what Paul is saying. What, what, what is most likely in view here? They're in Jerusalem. Uh, the, 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 the Christians in Jerusalem, uh, Jewish Christians, are the ones who are struggling the most. They are the ones who are receiving the most persecution. They are the ones who are the most at odds with the authorities uh, because it's, it's Jewish-dominated land. And, and so this is the poor church that they're talking about. All that we're asking is that you continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And what do we see in Paul's life? At the end of, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, at the end of Romans, Paul is doing what? He is collecting money for the poor Jewish church in Jerusalem. Right, like, and in each of those letters, he is sending for money. Like, Paul does this throughout his ministry. Like, this isn't just lip service when he says, hey, the, I, the very thing I was eager to do was remember the poor, talking about poor Christians uh, in Jerusalem. No, Paul in all of his letters, or not all of his letters, but in, uh, in First and Second Corinthians and in Romans, Paul is collecting money for these poor uh, Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, and he also says later on in Galatians chapter 6, I want you to think about this. Galatians chapter 6, 9 and 10. Um, I'll actually read this one. And it says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we, not, if we do not give, give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right? So it says, says Christians should be, good, should be doing good. There's reward in it. There's, there's blessing that God provides for that. Maybe not on this side of heaven, but eternally. And he says we should do good to all people. And so Christian, non-Christian, uh, we should be serving selflessly all people. But he says especially those who belong to the household of faith. If you were ever wondering uh, where I should devote most of my uh, sacrificial, selfless service toward, I think Paul gives us the answer. Like, obviously, we want to give ourselves sacrificially so that those who don't know Jesus can see that in us and come to faith, because we're about to see the early church do just that, uh, and that is a big reason why people came to faith so quickly in Rome. Uh, and yet, Paul says, we are to good, do good to all people, especially those who belong to us. The community, in the family of faith, uh, most selflessly. So, how is this lived out in the early church? I want to look at some history. Now, this is uh, where it gets kind of fun. Uh, I'll be pulling on some resources from a book by a guy named Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark is uh, actually not a theologian and not a historian, he's a sociologist. Uh, But he wrote this Pulitzer Prize nominated book called The Rise of Christianity, where he basically takes the lens of sociology. And he applies it to historical documents, historical records about how the early church uh, interacted with people. And he makes an argument for why Christianity grew so fast like it did. And so uh, he actually, it's it's really fascinating for me. He uses uh, a lot of uh, interesting data. I'll even share some of that with you. A lot of interesting calculations as to how Christianity would have overtaken Rome uh, from the time of Jesus to basically the time of Constantine. Uh, How could it possibly have grown so fast in this culture? So what we see is in the first two centuries after Christ's death, the Roman world was ravaged by epidemics. Uh, uh, most prominently in the late 100s, uh, all the way till about 300, right? There were plagues that ravaged uh, Rome. People were dying right and left. 
Uh, and some of the, some of the estimates, I, I compared a bunch of estimates about how many people died. Some of them are pretty astronomical. Like you, you start with maybe 10% of people uh, died. Some people said like 50%, which is kind of extreme. That's a whole lot of people dying. Uh, but there was a large number of people who were dying due to epidemics and plague and those kinds of things. Uh, and so uh, Rodney Stark makes this argument that three factors, there were three factors that helped Christianity prevail over other religions and Roman and philosophies of Rome. So what were those factors? Well, the first factor is that Christianity had better theological resources to deal with death and suffering. Uh, remember what I just said to you about the Apostle Paul and what he was saying about death? Right, how he talks about uh, Epaphroditus almost dying, as if it's just, yeah, sick people, you know, Christians too. Uh, Christians, godly Christians, people who are serving the Lord get sick and they die. And if God saves them, that is a mercy. Uh, and if he doesn't, uh, Paul says in Philippians, the same book, he says, you know, it is better to me, for me to be with Christ, which is better by far. Right? And he almost talks about it like it's a, it's a conflict with him. Right? Like, I, I can go and be with Jesus, or I can stay here and serve. Uh, either way, Paul is good with that. And that's how the early Christians thought about that. It wasn't something that was shocking or surprising or that had to uh, rattle their faith like it would uh, a pagan. Right? It didn't have to rattle their worldview and, and to... Uh, something that they had to explain away or to minimize, right? Like death happens for the church. They, they understand that, and they have theological resources to deal with it. A guy named William McNeil, uh, he wrote a book called Plagues and Plagues. Uh, it's a overview of plagues and how cultural plagues were perceived. Uh, and he says an advantage that Christians enjoyed over pagans is that the teaching of their faith made life meaningful, even amid sudden surprise and death. Even a shattered remnant of survivors who had somehow made it through war and pestilence or both, could find warm, immediate, and healing consolation in the vision of a heavenly existence for those missing relatives and friends. Christianity was, therefore, a system of thought and feeling thoroughly adapted to a time of troubles in which hardship, disease, and violent death commonly prevailed. Right? So Christianity provided them with historical resources, or not theological resources, that uh, allowed them to explain death. Uh, and to understand death in a way that didn't necessarily rock them like it would others. They could, they could, they could interpret it in a positive way rather than in something that is, uh, what have we done? Are the gods angry with us? Uh, what do we have to do? How do we explain this kind of thing? No, Christians just die. Our Savior died, uh, and, and he was resurrected, and we can expect the same thing. Um, Cyprian of Carthage, uh, during the first great epidemic, this is around 250, uh, and actually, the, 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 because he wrote so much about this epidemic, it's actually called the, the, the Cyprian Plague, or the Plague of Cyprian, uh, historically. So it's, it's uh, this bishop in, who was in Carthage. He wrote so much about it that it's, it's named after him. Uh, he says, he explains, although, uh, although the just are dying with the unjust, so he's looking around and he's seeing all of these Christians dying, and he's saying, although the just are dying with the unjust, it is not for you uh, to think that destruction is a common one uh, is a common one for both the evil and the good. The just are called to refreshment. The unjust are carried off to torture. These are trying exercises for us, not deaths. Get what, how he's spinning that, right? So uh, what's happening? Our, our people are dying of plague. Uh, these are trying exercises for us, but not death. They give the mind the glory of fortitude. By contempt of death, they, uh, they, they prepare for the crown. Our brethren who have been freed from the world by summons of the Lord should not be mourned, since we know that they are not lost but sent before, that in departing they lead the way 
They should be longed for, not lamented. That no occasion should be given to pagans to censure us undeservedly and justly on the ground that we grieve for those who we say are living. Uh, I love that, right? So he's, he's, I mean, he's saying that we, we should not lament or suffer or, uh, as the world suffers, but because we suffer in hope, as Paul says. Uh, we shouldn't suffer the way the world suffers because the world is right. Deserve, we deserve that kind of criticism if we are uh, acting like people we say are living uh, are dead, right? Like we, that should carry us and shape our perspective about death. And here he's talking about all these people who are dying of plague. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite impressive that, that, that uh, he is able to, uh, to uh, explain this in, in that way to his people, to, to comfort them, to, to, to correct their perspective and say, we should not be like the, the pagan world uh, thinks. We should not think like the pagan world thinks. So that's the first one. Christianity uh, simply had better theological resources to be able to cope with death and suffering uh, than the pagan resources. Two, Christians were better suited to survive epidemics. Oh, excuse me. They, were better, uh, they better survived epidemics because of their sacrificial service to one another. So not only Christians were, were Christians had uh, Christianity provide provided better theological explanations for dealing with death and suffering. But Christians themselves, Christians themselves, were better able to survive epidemics because of the way they served one another. This is Dionysius, Bishop of Corinth, who's talking just after uh, Cyprian, right? Uh, and this is a, a second great epidemic in, in his talk. He says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministry to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. So he's talking about Christians who, who died serving others, who died uh, knowing that they, they don't know anything about germs. They don't know how, about how to wash your hands or sanitize. They don't know about fecal-borne versus airborne illnesses or it's in the water, you know, all of those things. They don't know anything about that. And so uh, these Christians are going in and trying to minister to their brothers uh, and sisters in Christ, and they are dying right and left. And he says, uh, they departed the life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many nursing and curing others transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. So the people I served got better and I end up dying. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems to be in every way the equal of martyrdom. And it's just like what, what we talked about with Epaphroditus. Honor uh, people like this. Why? Because they risked their life to make up for the help that the, the Philippians could not give Paul, to serve him, uh, to love him sacrificially, right? That is, the, that is the group that we celebrate, honor. And, and, he, and Dionysus is saying, uh, they, this, is, this, is, this is a parallel to martyrdom. Those who are actually dying preaching the gospel, those who give their lives in sacrificial service to the sick brethren. Uh, another, uh, another contrast, Dionysus actually uh, compares Christian sacrifice to what was going on around him among pagans. And he says, the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At first onset of disease... They pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating them um, and throwing them in the roads before they were dead and treated the unburied corpses as dirt, hoping, to thereby, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now, um, 
perhaps, perhaps this is just Christians bragging about how great Christians are, right? Like, um, would pagans themselves recognize, like, would, would, would unbelieving uh, leaders and rulers recognize that Christians were indeed sacrificing themselves for others and, and that they were uh, more likely to survive because of that kind of thing? They actually do. We'll give you, a, I'll give you an example of that in a second. So that is the second thing, okay? So we've got first... Uh, Christian, Christianity was able to uh, grow quickly and, and uh, uh, survive all of these epidemics and these plagues. One, because Christianity provided better theological resources. Two, because Christians were more likely, because of their service to one another, more likely to survive uh, the threat of disease. And thirdly, Christians who stayed to serve others would have been able to evangelize the sick pagans left behind. Uh, you can't overlook this, right? So what's going on is a bunch of pagans are dying uh, because they don't get treated, because nobody's treating them, because everybody runs away, right? So you've got a bunch of uh, unbelieving people who get sick, and they die for lack of nursing, right? So even, like, basic nursing care uh, can, can help somebody survive, like, increase the percentage that you're not going to die from uh, these kinds of diseases. And so Christians could serve by providing basic nursing care to one another. So you've got a bunch of uh, uh, pagans who are dying for lack of care, and you've got a bunch of pagans who are leaving. And so Christians who end up staying and serving and treating those uh, who are not Christians uh, get the opportunity to influence them in a way that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And so there's an opportunity for the church to grow there. Tertullian of Carthage, who was an early apologist, we've looked at Tertullian before in his, in his discussions about the deity of Christ, the deity and humanity of Christ. He says, it is our care of the helpless our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Only look, they say. Look how they love one another. Um, I want to give you a quote from an emperor. So this is a, a guy named Julian the Apostate. Uh, Julian the Apostate lived uh, after Christianity had become the official religion of Rome. Uh, Constantine uh, wipes out persecution of Christians, and several emperors afterward are Christians, and so Christianity becomes really the law of the land, and there's, and there's protection. Julian, who is an, uh, a Roman emperor, ends up take, coming into power at about, I guess, around 360, uh, and he is a pagan, and he wants to go back to the ancient uh, Roman religions. He says that we, ha we had it better when we worshipped all of these different gods, and so let's get rid of Christianity. I don't like him anyways, uh, and so let's bring back the, the, the pagans. But he has to confront the fact that uh, Christianity has been able to grow, and he answers why it has grown so fast. Here's what he says. He says, uh, let us consider that nothing has so much contributed to the progress of the superstition of Christians as their charity to strangers. All right, so here, here, here Julian is, has no reason to brag on Christians, and he says, what has contributed so much to their growth as their charity to strangers? He says, I think we ought to discharge this obligation ourselves. We ought to be doing this. We ought to establish hospitals in every place, for it would be a shame for us to abandon our poor while the impious Galileans, that's what he's calling Christians, provide not only for their own but also for ours. All people can see that our people lack aid from us. Right, so he's speaking to his own shame. Like, we are the ones who are not providing for the needs of these uh, poor and the sick. And the Galileans, the Christians, are the ones who are growing by virtue of the fact that they are the ones ministering to the needs of others. Uh, and so, how did this actually take place? Uh, uh, Stark says three things again. He says, Christianity provided theological resources. Christians were better able to survive epidemics and not die themselves because they served one another, and pagans did not. 
Christians were also able to evangelize uh, and to protect and to serve uh, those pagans who uh, survived uh, because others had died off or others had left. Uh, and so they had uh, opportunities to be able to influence them. Now, Rodney Stark makes this really neat calculation. So he, he argues that there are three kinds of relationships in, in Rome uh, during these first 300 years. There's Christian-Christian relationships, where two Christians have a relationship with one another. Uh, Christian-pagan relationships and pagan-pagan relationships. All right, so three kinds. Now, what happens during these epidemics? Well, he says... He estimates that, Stark estimates that about, and he cites various sources, and he's not just pulling these out of thin air. I mean, he is, he is citing various kind of epidemiological studies or historical studies. He estimates that 10% of Christians would have died during the plagues compared to 30% of pagans who lacked basic nursing care. So already the mortality rate for pagans is way higher uh, than it is for Christians. Way more likely to die if you're a pagan for lack of, lack of care. He also estimates that about 20% of pagans fled the city while Christians stayed. Uh, so think about the turnover that's going on so far, like who's staying, who's surviving versus who's dying and going. And so what he calculates is he says this means the likelihood of different relationships surviving is 81% for Christian-Christian relationships. In other words, the, fact, the likelihood that a Christian relationship with another Christian would survive the plague because neither one of them died or left is about 81%. For Christian uh, pagan relationships, it is about 45%. And for pagan pagan relationships, that is about 25%. What does this all mean? So he basically concludes, after epidemics, surviving pagans were likely to have severed relationships with other pagans through them dying or leaving and have more opportunities to interact with Christians. And so Stark makes the argument that... Uh, you would actually be surprised if Christianity didn't take off in this kind of environment, right? Like, it, you've got every opportunity, if you are somebody who doesn't know Jesus, somebody who doesn't worship Christ, uh, to be able to now, having survived this epidemic, you have likely seen all of your friends, your pagan friends, either die or leave, run away scared because they didn't want to get sick, and you were probably ministered to by, by some uh, group of Christians who risked their own lives to do that for you. So within that context... Uh, uh, Christian conversions, people who were becoming Christians, having seen that and experienced that themselves, uh, it was far more likely to happen. And so Stark uh, cites this as one of the key factors leading to the rise of Christianity, why it was over to, able to overtake pagan religions and pagan philosophies so quickly. So where does this leave us? Well, uh, another group of people that I want to talk about. Remember Epaphroditus, uh, the risk taker. Uh, remember that verb, para, uh, para mai, to risk or to gamble. Um, there is uh, a group of people in the early church who took upon that, that word. Parabaluamai is actually used only one time in the New Testament. That's the only time, the risk taker, the gambler. And there was this group of people in around the three, third or fourth century called the Parabolani. So it is, it, is, it is quite literally the gamblers or the risk takers. And what these people would do, these are the folks uh, who would go into... Uh, into uh, areas where there were sick people. They would go into sick vill villages where people were dying of plague, uh, and they would go and nurse them. They would go and serve them. Uh, at the risk of their very own lives, oftentimes they died. Um, uh, this, not, this not only was for something, not only uh, at the risk of their own health, uh, it actually cost them all of their social relationships as well. If you were a member of the Parabolani, you were not able to uh, go into theaters or to vi visit various social locations because they were taking care of sick people. And so there was a law that said the Parabolani 
are not allowed to interact with others because of all of this interaction that they're doing with sick, with sick people. And so what you've got is this group of people uh, who are so committed to the idea that we need to take care of those who are helpless and those who are needy and those who need our attention, uh, that they, uh, they sacrifice their own safety and they sacrifice their own ability to even have uh, normal relationships like, like you and I would have. They didn't call themselves the Parabolani, right? They, uh, society called them the Parabolani. Uh, as I was thinking of this group, uh, I was thinking about what adjective would be used to describe me, right? Like, uh, the world looked at these people and the decisions that they were making and the way that they risked their lives for others, and they said, you guys are the risk takers. You guys are the gamblers, right? The Parabolani. Um, and, uh, I, you know, this idea of a gambling metaphor struck me, right? So, like, uh, you, in, in, the Parabolani seem to be the kind of people who were, were putting it all on God, right? Like, if this is uh, their decision to serve others, their decision to live sacrificially that way, it cost them their relationships and even their own life, uh, it was them putting it all on God, saying that if, if this is not real, if, if there is no heaven on the other side, if, this is, if there is no resurrection, if there is no honor in heaven, for people who give their lives selflessly, we look like some, some idiots, right? Like, we look like stupid people. Like, it's, it's like the Apostle Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied. Not, hey, life was good anyways. Like, that's, I mean, that's, that's how I'm tempted to live my life, right? Like, if somebody asks me, hey, does life go better with Jesus, uh, even if, if this hasn't been real? Like, think about that. If, you, if, if somebody said to you, pose the question, if you found out tomorrow that this is all garbage, that this is not true, uh, that we've been living a lot, you just, you know, hey, there's no God and there's no resurrection, uh, would you say, hey, living like a Christian's been cool anyways, right? Like life has been good. That is not what the Apostle Paul would say. The Apostle Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied. Why? Well, because Paul is living the kind of life and making the kind of sacrifices that people would look at him and say, you're an idiot. You've given up everything, right, for this. If this is not working out, then you are a fool. And the Parabolani are like that. They're the gamblers, the risk takers. Um, compare that to what, what I think I do most of the time. I don't put it all on God. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I am acknowledging that I am not the perfect embodiment at all in any way of somebody who is living uh, a risk-taking kind of life. And I say that to my own shame. I don't, I don't, I don't do that like I, I want to. People wouldn't look at my life and say, you are the, the gambler. Um, I'm not putting it all on God. What I do uh, by comparison is I hedge my bets. Um, and you know what it means to hedge your bets. You, it means that you spread out your bet to make sure that like, hey, if this one doesn't work out, well, these ones will still be pretty cool, right? Like these, these ones may work out. And so what I've done, uh, I feel like most of my life as a Christian even is, is I have hedged my bet. I put some on God, uh, maybe even at various times a lot on that. Uh, but I'm also hedging. I'm I'm putting some in this professional uh, status basket, and I'm putting some in this uh, uh, creature comfort basket where I've got a nice house and plenty of money and lots of security, and, and, uh, and I, I've got a lot in this friendship basket where I have these really satisfying relationships. And, and even if this Christianity thing doesn't work out, everything else has been pretty cool. So at the end of my life, I could say, well, did I really lose anything? Did, I really, did it really cost me anything uh, to follow Christ? I don't think that, that characterizes the Parabolani. I don't think it characterizes the early church, the risk takers, the gamblers, the people who are giving of themselves selflessly. People wouldn't look at my life and say, wow, Sam the gambler. They would say, Sam the 
world-class champion, uh, Bet Hedger. Uh, and, and would that be said of us, right? Like, I'm convicted by that. I'm, I'm, I'm convicted uh, that's, that, that when this is all said and done, like, my life will have been a series of, of hedges uh, to try to minimize any kind of risk associated with the gospel uh, or risk associated with following Jesus. I think it's worth asking ourselves the question, what has following Christ ever cost us? Really? Like, I'm not saying, you don't, have to, you don't have to work to be a Christian. I'm not saying you have to work to make Jesus love you. Uh, Jesus has already paid for your life, and he owns it. Uh, and so what has I'm not saying that because I'm, uh, that's not false humility at all. Uh, Edge completely my, my, myself from, from any for, for Christ. Um, a modern day example of this, I want to leave you with uh, a modern day example. So what would, what would risk-taking like this look like for us? Uh, I don't think there are a lot of, there's, you know, there's no Ebola outbreaks for us to go and, and, and try to minister to people selflessly, and there are smarter ways to do that than going and saying, like, hey, I'm going to go without my hazmat, and I'm just going to you know, uh, make out with somebody who has Ebola or something like that so that I can uh, do that. It's, that's, that's not required of us. And yet, what is a way, tangibly, that we can risk, um, that we can really risk, that would actually cost... Uh, and I think you could say money is the easy one or time is the easy one. Um, I want to give you an example of that. So when I, it was one of the privileges of my life has been, and I'm, I'm going to try to keep it together. So one of, the, one of the privileges of my life has been when I was doing my dissertation research, I was studying adoption. And a lot of adoption is, is, uh, is not, um, is, I Adoption is, 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 can be very sacrificial. Oftentimes, adoption is a blessing to you, and it is something where you are gaining, and it's not something that you are sacrificing or giving up to make that happen. And so I don't mean to pose adoption as something that is like, oh, you, you, know, like you awesome parents for adopting kids. Like it, um, my family has been blessed through adoption, and so uh, I don't mean to kind of hold those folks up all, all, all as like the, the end-all, be-all of what it looks like. One of the privileges of my life was to meet a, a group of people uh, when I was in Chicago, um, and what they would do is they would adopt uh, hospice children. And so these were children who, who either through abuse or because they were sick um, were either taken away from their parents or they were not, um, or they were abandoned. So they were, they were either left in the hospital uh, or, they were, uh, or they were ripped away from their parents because their parents had abused them so bad, and these children were terminally ill. They were going to die either because their abuse was so severe or because they were so sick. And so these parents, these, these people, they had already raised their kids, and, and these, these, these people had decided that, that no child uh, should die alone. Uh, and so what they would do is they would, they, they would adopt these children, and they would bring these kids into their home, and these kids are going to die. Like, they've got, they got tubes sticking out of every, every uh, hole in their body. Um, it's only a matter of times, and only a matter of time, and you don't know what's going to happen. And so what they, they would do is they would, they would take these kids into their home, and they would love these kids. 
And they would hold these kids and sing to these kids and kiss these kids. And those kids died. But they died loved, right? Uh, and these people uh, would just keep going back to doing this. They would just do this over and over again. Social workers would contact them because social workers have to do this legally. They have to say, like, hey, we have this child who, you know, um, needs to be placed. Uh, and the social worker would have to, you know, pro forma, as a formality, kind of say, like, hey, you should, you should, uh, we need a family. And then they would say, don't do this. <laughs> like, don't, don't do this to yourself. There's, there's no reason. Like, let them, let them die in the hospital. And these people, uh, these people said, like, no, no child should die, like, in, in an incubator with, with uh, bells and beeps and, and, uh, and, and nobody there to be with them. And, uh, and so the first time I talked to these people, I mean, I just, I just bawled uh, my eyes out all the way home uh, back, to, uh, back to where I, we were living at the time because I'd, I'd never seen uh, anything like that. I can't imagine something so difficult. So um, to give you a picture of what that might look like, I actually uh, found an example. This is a lady who is a Christian. I looked on her website today, and she had all kinds of links to DesiringGod.org and John Piper and those kinds of things, so she's a a believer. But this is a a three-minute video about a lady who does this, and so I'll I'll give you that. uh, um. of almost 30 years, a mom of eight biological children, and then we do medical treatment, foster care, and adoption of medically needy kiddos, and we've had seven of them come through our doors. Okay, so this is Charlie's room. We adopted him when he was 18 months old, and he wasn't even anticipated to live long enough to get adopted. And at this point in time, he's lived two years longer than that. Day to day, we live like he's living. When he actually is dying, then we will roll with what's necessary. In the meantime, we are living like Charlie is living. We sing songs to him, and we pick him up, and we dance, and he gets lotioned, and he gets fed, and he's nurtured, and, and the kid is just living life. It's not all good, it's not all bad, it's not all scary, it's not all fearful, it's not all joyful. It's everything all together, and I don't make a difference for hundreds and hundreds of babies but I'm able to step into the lives of a few of them and make all the difference for that one. And this is where I've been able to thrive. There are tears and there's grief, but there's so much more joy and hope for his life. I have what it is that God gives me strength to handle. There are definitely situations where the baby just dies and they don't 
necessarily have a name. And no one goes to a funeral. And they're not, they're not missed. And they're, and they're not loved. And that, for me, is just not an option. I just am celebrating the fact that you even were able to live. And we're gonna be very sad when you go. But we're just gonna be more glad that you came. So my, uh, my prayer is that um, stories like that are less, um, become less the kind of thing that we see on like the Today Show, like as, a, as a, an amazing and unique thing that so few people do. Um, and, something that, and it becomes something that Christians just become known for, right? Like that's, that's what Christians do. They're the ones who, who give themselves emotionally uh, and, uh, and they give up their resources selflessly uh, to be able to serve uh, others. And, uh, and I think that is a, a powerful witness. It, it, uh, it was a powerful witness in the early church, and it could be a powerful witness uh, for us in Norman. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. God, I think about uh, the sacrifices that your people have made in history for one another, and for people that they didn't know, uh, and they risked their lives, and they risked their resources and their time uh, and their emotional comfort, uh, and they did it for your kingdom. Uh, Paul said about this Aaron boy, Epaphroditus, that he was a fellow worker and a fellow soldier, and that we should honor people like Epaphroditus and like this lady uh, who adopts uh, foster uh, hospice uh, children and gives of herself um, so that they can die uh, in someone's arms. God, I think I uh, convicted about how much I protect myself from loss and how I try to minimize uh, any requirements that, I may, that may be asked of me uh, for the kingdom. And I pray that you would help me to walk by faith. I pray that you would help us uh, as a church uh, as your people in Norman, not just our church, but as the church uh, universal, to become known for this kind of thing, to become known, known as the gamblers, the risk takers, the people who are willing to, to risk the things that matter here, only here, uh, so that people can know you in eternity or so that we can have treasure in heaven. That requires faith in the resurrection, and I pray that you would uh, supernaturally give us that faith so that we could... Um, be salt and light to this world. God, thank you for the example that the early church has been for us the last five weeks, and I pray that uh, you would help us to take these kinds of things to heart, that they would be encouraging, that they would be motivating to walk more closely with you, uh, to love your people selflessly, uh, to fall more in love with your church, and to, to long to know more about where you're taking us. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>